I teach now at Princeton, and I had my students read an old Paris Review interview with Hemingway, um, more toward the end of his life. But he talks about the importance of mystery and the mystery of art and the mystery of life, and and not the and and the importance of not unfolding it and unpacking it too much, and to really just sort of appreciate how these forces are very mysterious. You know, creativity is mysterious. Um, art is mysterious. Life is mysterious. And and so in that sense, you know, desire is a mysterious thing. And I've just tried to kind of follow mine. And, and this is where it's brought me. Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, the Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we are going to be hearing a clip of a conversation between Jhumpa Lahiri and Anne Goldstein. They're going to be talking about translation and Jhumpa's new book, In Other Words, published by Knopf. We're also going to be hearing from John Freeman, uh, who recently went down to Cripple Creek, Virginia, to interview master essayist Annie Dillard. Excellent. And also, uh, we're going to be hearing Ebony Stewart, slam champion Ebony Stewart, uh, who got a standing ovation at Poets Runners Live in Austin. And so much more. So stick around. March April issue is here. It's our annual writers retreats issue. Right, and for this one, we uh, took a look at over eighty free writers retreats, book fairs, and festivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they happen in thirty-eight states. Mm-hmm. And you know, every issue, we obviously publish listings of writing contests and conferences and residencies. And often, those things cost money in the form of entry fees or application fees or just the cost of going to a retreat. Mm-hmm. So when we have an opportunity to draw attention to those that don't cost money, uh, we, we like to do that. So a couple of years ago, we did a free writing contest issue. That was very popular. And so this time we did the free writer's retreats issue mm-hmm. um, because a writer shouldn't necessarily have to pay uh, in order to have sort of an inspiring getaway where they can uh, you know, experience the community and get advice and things like that. So all of these are really good opportunities and they don't necessarily cost a lot of money. Right. Um, and our special section also features a couple really great articles um, about writers' retreats, including uh, a piece on Cheryl Strayed's Writers Camp, which uh, happens every year at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alexander Chi also wrote a piece on um, advice for first-time colonists. Right. And uh, he's uh, got a new novel out, The Queen of the Night, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Mm-hmm. We also have a really great Q&A with Jhumpa Lahiri and Anne Goldstein. Um, Jhumpa Lahiri, of course, is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Interpreter of Maladies and The Lowland. Uh, and Anne Goldstein um, is the translator of Elena Ferrante's novels. Um, she also works as an editor at The New Yorker. Right. So I met them um, at One World Trade Center. And, uh, you know, they had a fascinating conversation. And they talked about Jhumpa's new book. It's called In Other Words. And, um, yeah, it's an amazing conversation about Jhumpa's decision uh, to write in Italian. She had studied the language for many years. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and she, she read in Italian for many years. And then she moved to Italy, to Rome, mm -hmm. and started writing in Italian. And, you know, she talks about how it was a really... Uh, kind of liberating decision for her mm -hmm. uh, to write in Italian because really there was no reason to do it other than that she wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, so the sort of freedom um, that came with no expectations on her to write in a certain language or to write about certain things. So that was really interesting. And also, you know, she decided not to translate herself. Right. So they talk a bit about that and we're going to listen to that now. I discovered when I, I was analyzing some... Um, something that I translated. I was trying to analyze why I chose certain words as opposed to certain other words. And I, I realized that, in fact, a lot of it is kind of mysterious. Sorry to tell you this, but it is a bit mysterious. I mean, why you, you, know, why you, why you settle on one word rather than another. And, and in the process of translating um, your book, which was you know, a really different kind of experience from translating any other book, because I'd never translated something by somebody who who knew English as well as I do, as well as I do, if not better, but, you know. So, of course, I was very self-conscious about it. I mean, I didn't think what, would you, what word would you use because I have no idea. I mean, I'm, and I didn't, I sort of, you know, I didn't want to study your writing and say, let me reproduce something that everyone will recognize because I don't think it is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it is a different kind of writing in English as well. But you just said the most important thing, I think, which is that language is... Is the biggest mystery. Yeah. Of all it, the it mysteries. I think language is the most mysterious thing we as human beings have created. I mean, nature is mysterious. There are lots of mm -hmm. mysterious things, right? The world is full of mystery. But I think as a human product, language, I mean, and this is, has been one of the many revelations of, of learning to, to write, to think in another language. I mean, I think even learning to speak in another language, it, you, you, you open a door and you realize, wow, it's a great unknown <laughs> out there. Anyway, at least in my experience, this is one of the great revelations of, of, of what I'm doing right now is just an utter, a renewed respect, appreciation, awe for language any language, language, mm -hmm. as with a capital yeah. L, um, not, you know, not Italian versus Chinese mm -hmm. versus English, but language as a, as a product, as a phenomenon, as a reality, um, as something that we have created as human beings and as, as what we writers work with, it is a profoundly mysterious medium. And I don't think one can ever really touch, you know, even begin to touch the bottom mm -hmm. of that um, ocean you know, yeah. and um, and I think as writers, we have a sense of we know how to navigate the seas, you know, and I think the 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 the, the whole water crossing ocean lake imagery is very strong in this book. Um, I'm aware I'm aware of that. Um, I've always been I think water has been in everything I've written from from the <laughs> beginning. I grew up near water and it's a very you know, powerful element for many, many of us. It's nothing terribly original but um you know i went sailing uh, last summer i didn't sail the boat needless to say but we were on a sailboat for a week in the in the aeolian islands um and we had a skipper who sailed the boat um with my family and another family and we we had a lovely week and um we talked a lot and and he said you know um i can take you here and there and i will do my best and you know God willing, everything will be smooth sailing, right? But he always said, know that we are not welcome here. 
this is not our element. You know, we are meant to be on land. We're mm-hmm. not meant to be on yeah, sea. And I was really struck by that. I mean, he's just this, you know, hardened Sicilian mm-hmm. sailor who can probably sail a sailboat across the Atlantic, mm-hmm. is my sense. He was very capable. But that was his attitude. That was just a profound awe and respect. We are in an, uh, an element in which we do, not pr- in, we do not belong. And we have to proceed knowing that. And I feel that as a writer, that's how I, I want to feel. And I, I think one should feel it in whatever language one is working in. But I think obviously working in a language, working in, a, in an acquired language, in a new language, that sense of awe and respect is multiplied mm-hmm. all the more. But I think that's what writers are. I think they're, you know, they're sailors who know how to navigate this water, but it's not, it's this mysterious, dangerous element, mm-hmm. you know, and it can swallow us. It can, we can drown in it. We, it can do all sorts of things. Um, that we don't, we can't anticipate. It can take us places. We also have a really fantastic profile of Annie Dillard. Right, by John Freeman, who has written for us in the past. Uh, Most recently, he did a profile of Donald Hall, which was excellent, and this time he traveled down to Virginia near Cripple Creek and spent a couple of days with Annie Dillard, Mm -hmm. who has a new collection of essays called The Abundance. And um, what would you say? She's she's one of the most influential essayists around, right? As we say on the cover, uh, the master essayist. Right. So we're going to call John and, uh, you know, see what it was like to, to spend some time with her. Call is now being recorded. So thanks for, uh, you know, taking a little time to, uh, out of your day to talk to me a little bit. Um, you know, you wrote this fascinating profile of Annie Dillard for the new issue. Uh, it's called Such Great Heights. And to do the interview, you traveled down to Virginia and spent a couple of days with the author. I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about that trip and what you found once you got down there. Yeah, it was a fun trip. I mean, she lives in Ivanhoe, Virginia, which is basically Cripple Creek, Virginia. And it's in a cove of hills that's only reachable by dirt track road uh, off a one-lane highway off of another road. So it's it's actually quite a, you know, uh, finagle to get there. And she was really worried that I wouldn't get there before dark, which I had sort of poo-pooed thinking, of course, I've got GPS. And then I got there, and <laughs> the blackness of these hills were Confederates hid and realized that it actually would be very hard to, to find. And so when, when I finally got there... Um, she was kind of, I told you so. Uh, but we had a, a, a nice meal and, and sat there. And I guess I I wasn't sure what to expect about what she would be like as a person because her voice is so strong on the page and her her pose has always been observational. But she's always been looking mostly at the natural world and at, at sort of long um, time. She's not looking all that much off at people very much. So when I sat down there at the, her dinner table in this tiny cabin, um, built uh, from a from a kit that they ordered from Maine, I think. Uh, it was slightly alarming to have this um, immense observational intelligence suddenly directed at me. It was like staring into a sun. <laughs> um, I've never met someone who reads as voraciously as, as she does and as, as up-to-date on what's out. I mean, I'm shy of, say, you know, working book review editors at, at major newspapers. I've never met someone who seems to be on top of everything from Kristen 
Quade Valdez, I think, is someone that she mm-hmm. mentioned. Mm-hmm. Pico Iyer to Nicholas Rothwell. She kind of poo-pooed Knausgaard. And it was kind of like walking into a salon that you would expect to be um, situated in a major metropole, and instead you're in the, the fastness of a Appalachian hill town. Right. Well, and but you know, she's obviously this uh, incredible intelligence. But I re- really comes out in the profile is also that she's she's very warm as well. I mean, she w- really welcomed you into her home, and they are really warm people. I mean, aside from the intimidation factor, she instantly became um, quite funny and and a, an, an amazing host. Uh, she and her husband um, Bob Richardson, the biographer. Another thing that comes out in the profile is that uh, just just what kind of teacher she was over the years. You know, it seems like she really had you know kind of deep connection uh, to her students as, as well. And you and you interview uh, several people who comment on her her teaching style. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Alex Chi and Maggie Nelson were among her students, mm-hmm. and Alex um, wrote very much about how she was sort of the model of a living writer. You know, the seriousness with which she took her craft, but also the way she lived her life. You know, the kind of singularity of, of purpose, but also generosity. And Maggie, meanwhile, wrote to me about just how rigorous her class was, uh, but fun. The first half of the class was about workshop and going over papers, and she would chew through candies and, and smoke. And then in, in the second mm-hmm. half, she would take them out and, you know, in, into the world. And she would make them do profiles and interview people. And I think that there is a, there is a, a dangerous tendency not saying it's in all programs, but certainly in creative nonfiction, to, with memoir writing especially, uh, circle the wagons and, and encapsulate everything that's happening in the workshop rather than sort of opening the workshop right. to the world. And some of the best creative nonfiction writers I know, Sukhachi Mehta and Annie Dillard among them, mm-hmm. have things where they take their students out into the world. Right. Annie mentions that she's she's done with writing. Um, you know, after 40 years, she's now focusing on painting. Wondering what was that. What was that conversation like when you talked to her about that? And here's this sort of immense talent and intelligence and, and you know, the author of these amazing books that have really um, meant a lot to, you know, generations of, of readers and writers. What was it like to talk to her about not writing anymore? It was surprisingly normal in the sense that there was no sadness. There was no need for the endless victory lap that you sometimes see with writers like mm-hmm. Philip Roth. There was no kind of Sturmendram. It was sort of, mm-hmm. look, I, I had a good run. I wrote for 40 years. I wrote the books I tried to as best I could. And, you know, now it's time for me to do something else. And I, it made me realize that her books, the way that she was writing them, obviously it, it was about writing. And several of her mm-hmm. books are on writing. But to the larger degree, they were uh, books in search of something and uh, writing as a, as a mechanism for seeking truth. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean she, I think, has given up on that. It just means that in that form, you know, she's done the best she could. Mm-hmm. And that's that's sort of a nice thing, because I, I think there is this instinct when writers get older that, you know, writers are living so much longer now, that you think that they'll just be working forever up until the very moment, like job type, <laughs> you know, they're in the hospital bed saying goodbye. Right. And I, I I love the Dillard's life as sort of you know arcing in the way that uh, her books would have told you to live, which is to sort of be mindful, to pay attention, to work hard, to give back, to be generous, to you know be kind to the the planet, to be participatory, and and then you know when it's time to move on to something else, and right. and to right. not cling too strongly to to the self or ego or all the things that 
pile up with the jobs that we do. And it's astonishing given how much fame she had at at, right. at a really young age. I mean, I don't think we can even appreciate. She was on the Pulitzer when she was 29. Uh, you know, there are some fabulous writers working now, but I can't think of one that's even close to that kind of you know, comet-like uh, intelligence that, that Dillard merged with seemingly from the very beginning. But right. she was she was famous, and and she walked away from it, and and now she's sort of letting her books do the talking for her and, and getting on with her life. And we still have this amazing body of work to read, including the new book, The Abundance Narrative Essays Old and New, which is out in March from Echo. Thanks very much, John. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for the assignment. I had, I had a blast. I've got my mama's eyes Her long, thin frame and her smile And I still see wrong from right I've got my mama's eyes We were, of course, very sad to learn of the passing of C.D. Wright. She was an amazing poet. She just had a book come out from Copper Canyon Press. She was a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. Mm -hmm. So we reached out to the Academy. Uh, They have a pretty great uh, audio archive. Mm -hmm. And they shared a poem with us. It's called Obscurity and Voyaging. Mm -hmm. And it was recorded at the uh, 2013 Chancellor's Reading at the Academy. Right. Uh, And we're going to listen to that now. Obscurity and Voyaging. The hand was having a hard time holding the pen, a superficial cut, a long, clear, silent night, a book held open by a dola stone. The occupant selects a sentence. No one knows how small the smallest life is. If there's a call, it would not be answered. A bath, the burning of sweetgrass, soothed the limbs as a memory stings the brain. The furniture furniture serviceable but weird on the verge of grotesque. The vein of light under the door is a comfort to the occupant. The air inhales the passerine lines of a single singer. A motorcycle saws through the song and goes. An appliance purrs at intervals. The pen was bought in Gubbio, near the thin band marking the great dying of dinosaurs. The pen, a gift. It has been designed to coax a scream of beauty from a fissure of hairiness. Iridium in the nib. Thank you. One of this issue's page one authors is Melissa Broder, who is a poet, uh, and she's also the author of the popular Twitter handle, So Sad Today, um, which is also going to be a book coming in March from Grand Central Publishing. Anyone familiar with So Sad Today will know that uh, the Twitter feed deals in a darkly comic way with things like anxiety and depression and relationships and existential angst. Um, And the essay collection is sort of a a further exploration of those things. So we asked Melissa to read an excerpt of that book for us, and we're going to hear that right now. I want to be a whole person, but really thin. I am an eater of numbers. 
I prefer packaged foods, foods with a barcode, because they make the math simpler in counting calories, and that gives me a sense of peace. It's just an illusion of control, really, but that illusion is everything. It makes me feel safe. It gives me a stillness in my mind. All I've ever wanted is peace. I am a vanity eater, a machine-like eater, a suppressor of feels eater. I save the bulk of my calories for the end of the day so that I have something sweet and seemingly unlimited to look forward to. I do not trust the universe to provide enough of anything to fill my apparently bottomless hunger. That's the case with my consumption of a whole pint of diet ice cream with six packets of equal poured into it every single night. It's a way of offering myself something cloyingly saccharine and seemingly infinite. I don't believe that the world or God will give me that sweetness. So I am giving it to myself. I am going to bed full of sweetness that the day may not have provided. And I am defeating the laws of nature by doing this with diet ice cream. Most nights, I would rather curl up with diet ice cream than be in the world. I am an eater who enjoys structured magic. I don't feel courageous enough to let myself eat whatever I want because I don't want to face the wrath of what my mind will do to me after. I have a vested interest in keeping things under control because when I lose my illusions of control, I get very scared. The world is scary enough as it is. Just let me have this way of life. Let me continue to live under these self-imposed systems of diet ice cream, where I can have some of what I enjoy about binge eating, just without my mind destroying me after. I am an eater who doesn't trust herself. I am a bad mommy to myself and a poor steward of my body. I am an eater of rituals and a ritualistic eater. An eater who knows better but sees no impetus to get better because this kind of works and I feel more secure in my body at this weight. I am an eater who is a horrible feminist, probably. I dream of what I would eat if I identified as a man and it looks vastly different from what I eat as a woman. There would be so much pizza. The Mountain Dew would runneth over and it wouldn't even be diet. If I do not believe that I as a woman deserve pizza, what does that say of my views of other women? If I do not love my body, how can I love the body of any other woman? I could say I love my body so that I appear to be a good feminist, but that only means pretending to love something I hate. But I am an eater who is a good feminist, maybe, because I am being so honest with you here. I am telling you the truth, that I have not yet dismantled the many warped schemas that define the way I see my body and the bodies of other women. I am giving you permission to tell the truth about where you are in your process of dismantling your fucked up schemas. I am not pressuring you to dismantle anything. I am saying let's be here together, undismantled, and just accept that this is where we are. Let's love each other right where we are, even as we compare ourselves to one another. I am saying, yes, baby, I know it's hard. I am an eater who knows, intellectually, that control is an illusion. I know it experientially and spiritually 
through peak experiences and gentle experiences and love and sudden pain and tragedy. But asking the mind to give up control and the mind actually obeying is another animal. I am an eater whose mind says no. I am an eater who knows that ultimately you are responsible for yourself. An eater who doesn't want to take responsibility for herself other than to seek the feeling of safety. I am an eater who is scared to be so honest here. A disordered eater. I am a superficial woman of depth. How about Ebony Stewart? Ebony Stewart, three-time slam champion, Ebony Stewart. Mm -hmm. We recently had a Poets and Writers Live event in Austin, Texas, and she closed the night out uh, with a performance. And I think it's safe to say she brought the house down. She did. And she brought the audience to their feet uh, for a very uh, well-deserved standing ovation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, she killed it. She was amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's listen to some of that. Let's do it. It will end the way it started. Little girl, a notepad, a pen, a curved hand awkwardly holding on, writing her name first and the healing second. It will end the way it started. Imagination, want, push, learning to say her name in every word she writes until it sounds like poetry, until it sounds like healing, until it sounds like the beginning of her being a necessary existence, until it sounds like E-B-O-N-Y, until it sounds like who I have always been, this black girl and her black girl ways. My name is not convenient. It is the forgotten child stolen from historical value, a burden to the grief that haunts you. Before my name could be full and brave, it was lynched and barbecue skeptical. My name has been raped, branded, and whipped. My name is the chocolate milk titty your babies clung to and from a forgotten protagonist of forgotten facts. Did you forget how the stories go? My name is how easy it is to misplace the truth to strip me of all this mighty so I could be a life under servitude. My name is a reminder of nigger children who get murdered in the South, in the North, in the East, in the West, because my name is a threat. My name is the absence in your amen. Or did you forget how the stories go? My name ain't never got a pass, can't. Got too much oil slick, too much scratch, punch, and fight. My name is real confrontational. I ain't interested in your comfortable. My name bite too hard. Must have been caged. Must have been animalistic once. My name is only necessary after it benefits you. You say, my name ain't right. Well, mama say everything that has a beginning began in me. Say, I'm a blistering queen. Say, my name is the filter and all the light gotta pass through me. My name is a giant. It's rise. It's healing. It's learning to remember itself as the Congo, the beaten sound you dance to. My name is the utterance of struggle meets pride, meets grace, meets visible. Yeah, you see me reinventing myself, reclaiming my power. 
My name is the hero that freed ourselves. My name is newborn Negro and new birth. My name done trying to figure out why you don't love me. My name is a wealthy affirmation. My name is what blackness done been through and can be. My name say I can't be impossible because I be in existence. Ebony. So hunger was one of the most um, terrifying things I've ever done. And um, I think it was, by terrifying, I mean honest and uh, vulnerable and um, painful to write and tell these stories about my father and him not being present in my life. And that's the kind of hunger, we, we all hunger for something, right? Um, that we've never had or that you want more of. And so when I was thinking about what poems I wanted to do from hunger, I came across this poem that didn't actually make the show. And if you haven't seen it, that's okay. Uh, it'll come back maybe one day, but this poem is like if I got an opportunity to give you like a small piece of what that ache is. It's called Happy Father's Day. The child gets it wrong. He say I only write about the bad things. Say I don't remember the good things. Say I couldn't know or remember all that bad. Said I was too young. Guess I got a good imagination. Say I'm still writing about old stuff. Guess I ain't got over it yet. He don't like how what I write make him look like he ain't shit. Like he ain't raised his kids. Like he don't love us still. Guess I shouldn't write the truth. Guess I shouldn't write how I feel the way I grew up, the way I woman now. Guess I shouldn't make him look like he ain't nothing but some sperm donor, some dude. He say he tired of not being the hero in my poems. I say me too. I write what I know. He don't like the memories he left me with, me neither. Don't like being reminded of his faults, but I look in the mirror every day, got his face, what that make me? I say, how I'm supposed to escape. He say, I'm bitter. I say, that's what happened when you leave and ain't got nothing when you come back. I say, where I'm from, that shit hurts. He say, I ain't gonna be successful. I say, you made sure of that, and even if I am, you ain't gonna have nothing to do with that either. He say, I bought you ice cream once. Took you to the movies a few times, made you dinner, played you in Tekken that time. Remember, remember, I came to your volleyball game once, and that one time you played Powder Puff. Remember, remember, remember I met your boyfriend once, twice, maybe three times. I bought that one book for that one class while you was in college that one time. Came to your wedding, remember, we danced. Remember, I was at your graduation. I came to your new house once. Remember, I say you show up to be seen, to get praise and glory that don't belong to you. Damn, I must be ungrateful, needing more than, than one book, help paying off these student loans, all you done shit, guess I shouldn't need for shit. Now that, not that, that shoulder when I got that divorce, when I almost got raped, when I broke my ankle playing those sports, guess I was only hungry once, can watch the same movie for the rest of my life, eat only one flavor of ice cream, but I read or heard Baskin and Robbins got 32, guess I ain't need no talking to on how to get hurt by all these boys, you the best lesson. Guess your hurt is enough for the both of us. You right. I act like you ain't do nothing. 
Guess I ain't Christian. Guess I can't get over it. I'm so mean. Talk to you so bad. Treat you so funny. Guess when I grew up without you, I took you from me. Guess without you, I'd have nothing to write about. So thank you for teaching me how to make nothing out of something the way you raised me. So I come from a long line of women. The women in my family, they know how to, they know how to argue and be right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's the women I came from. Even if they're not. Um, and they, they know how to give you they last and um, got a problem keeping their mouths closed, but know how to talk without breaking, though. Uh, this is an offering to all the juicy women in my family. Because every woman in my family, because every woman in my family be pears, peaches, and watermelon. Because we be the fruit that didn't fall far from the tree. Because Juicy be a woman sweet enough to keep a man coming back on his knees because there's a such thing as too sweet and they can smell her coming. Because every house has a kitchen. Because the whole kitchen is an oven with a stove because the women in this house best know how to burn and cook something because if you don't know how to burn and cook something, you'll find a man who wants something more than something to eat because every woman in this house been stolen from her own home at least once. Now they keep a knife under their pillow because we don't talk about it because we can't say because secrets can be fixed with the door and daddy finally got the goddamn door fixed anyway because they still bang because you promised you wasn't gonna let nothing else bad happen to you, a sissy again, no how, no way, because the windows on her face say this ain't no trap house. But because the fiends keep lurking, because one of us standing on the front porch letting them take ass shots, she taunting and twerking, she ain't fully aware of her own self-worth and she been touched too much. She think a man only come to women who treat their bodies like servants because no one taught her how not to be temporary because honey, because child, grandmama still prayeth in the fold of her hands by the fruit of her loins and free we be. With all our spilled juice back in our body. I want to acknowledge that um, I, I, I posted a meme, like if people are into memes, okay. Um, I posted a meme that like, I think 2015 tried to kill everyone um, <laughs> in some way, right? And uh, the opportune word is that it tried, which means it didn't, which means you're here, which means you have more reasons to keep going. And there's so many things that happened last year just in like black culture, you know what I mean? Um, and in trying to remember everyone but not be redundant and telling, trying to like tell the same story, like y'all know cops kill black kids, you know that. You know what I mean? I don't need to tell you that. Um, if you're paying attention, you see that um, a kid is being abused or um, the list goes on and on, women's rights or issues or whatever. And I wanted to write a poem about those things and like, like right? But what happens when, when you kind of let joy and the things and the, the successes happen 
and the and being grateful happened. Um, so this poem is about joy. It's not about water remnants, evaporation, or sand, or thirst, or dry fruit, or hinges, or being hung today. No one died on the street, on the sidewalk, in the hands of a police officer, a guard today. A little boy is able to play outside and be a child with a full imagination today. The only time he was asked to put his hands up was to show us how he looks when he pretends he's flying today. A black woman could smoke a cigarette, could laugh, could do whatever the fuck she wanted to do with her hair. No one called me nigger today, blatantly or indirectly. Today, they remembered my name today. It sounded like joy no matter who said it today. Being black was not a reason to die by its natural causes. What I mean is, no one tried to kill me today. No black or or dark skin, or the wrong shade died today, today. The only time we came inside was to gather and tell stories. Remember when every day was a funeral, a sad song, and a eulogy, oh, but today. The only time we cried was when we rejoiced. The only hashtag we used today was joy. Today, the handkerchiefs only wanted to fill the faces of the ones who cried with joy. This poem is about joy. It's not about fear or anger or sadness. Them emotions come to us too easy. This poem is not about glass or porcelain or fragile things or being weak or tired or broken or how many times or how long we got to work for it. This poem is about joy, how long it stayed, how we remember it in us, always. Thank you so much. And that's ampersand. That's actually a year of ampersand. We've been doing this for six episodes now. Six episodes. Yep. Yeah, let us know what you think. Uh, if you're listening, we'd love to get your feedback. You know, hit us up on Twitter, hashtag ampersand. Or, you know, you could always write a letter to the editor. <laughs> you could. <laughs> you could. You know, I love Twitter. Uh well, do I love Twitter? I, I recognize Twitter <laughs> um, as, as a uh, interesting form of um, short bursts of communication. Right. No, I, I, I'm on Twitter. I like Twitter. However, I, I wonder whether it is replacing the letter to the editor. Hmm. Um, I wrote about this in my editor's note for the right. current issue. You know, the, our letters page... I'm not going to say it's been overrun by <laughs> tweets, but it's certainly uh, featured more tweets lately. Tweets are um, definitely making up, a, uh, taking up more real estate that's than right. ever did. That's right. And uh, it's not because we're favoring tweets over letters. Uh, we are just happen to be getting more tweets than letters these days, um, which is curious. Mm -hmm. Twitter's easier and faster. Right. It's also shorter. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of uh, long form. <laughs> constructive criticism right. comes on Twitter. Right. But yeah, the, the email, as I say, does not have a character count 
So if, if one did, if one were so inclined to email editor at pw.org, you could write as unlimited much as unlimited characters. <laughs> You're only limited by the strength of your your knuckles at that point. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. um, wiser words have <laughs> rarely been spoken. <laughs> only limited by the strength of your knuckles. <laughs> mm. um, so yeah, write to us. Write to us. Let us know what you think about the magazine, about the podcast, yeah. or tweet. Tweet's good too. You can always tweet. You could Facebook it if you wanted to. You could you could tumble it. You could um, Instagram it. You could Instagram it. You could you could also write a comment on SoundCloud. You could or iTunes. Uh, Ampersand is now available for download on iTunes, Stitcher, Mm -hmm. SoundCloud, and at pw.org forward slash ampersand. That's right. So um, tune in next time to Ampersand, the Poets and Writers Podcast. Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited by Melissa Falavino with assistance from Jonathan Walsh. Music for this episode was provided by Chris Zabriskie, Poddington Bear, Dead End Canada, Justin Towns Earl, Alex Fitch, Tritashion, and Wild Flag. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode at pw.org forward slash ampersand. <laughs>